0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Bible Prophecy Timeline Series. This is part nine entitled Apostasy. It's being released as a audio podcast and a video, both available at my website, BibleProphecyTalk.com. I also wanted to mention my newer project, The Bible Prophecy Archive, at the website, BibleProphecyArchive.com. This is a nonprofit endeavor to curate and preserve quality teachings on the subject of Bible prophecy in order to ensure the survival of these materials in the event of natural disasters, cyber attacks, or censorship. It's a free archive that includes articles, books, audiobooks, and videos from various Bible prophecy teachers used with their permission. The website, BibleProphecyArchive.com, you can download the 18.6 gigabyte file. But if you're having trouble downloading that file, you can request a physical copy, a 36 gigabyte USB drive that I will mail to you for free send your uh, address or wherever you want it sent to bible prophecy archive at protonmail.com and i will get one in the mail to you all right so in this episode i'm talking about apostasy but specifically this end times apostasy this apostasy that takes place in the end times that is associated with the antichrist and false prophets deception And I will argue that this apostasy takes place more or less where we are at in the timeline series, that is just after the abomination of desolation at the midpoint, and so is associated with the Antichrist revelation. So we've got a lot of things happening here, his resurrection from the dead, his declaration of deity, his sitting in the temple, all of this stuff looked at from a very religious perspective. The point is that a lot of people buy what he's selling. A lot of people believe his lies more than we would like to think, I think. And as a result of that believing of his and the false prophets doctrine, there is a great falling away. There are three main passages that specifically reference this end times apostasy, Matthew 24, 9 through 13, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, and 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 through 4. I will read them here. Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion or apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And 1 Timothy 4, 1-5 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciousnesses are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. There are other passages that give us more information about this time period, but that do not specifically mention the apostasy, such as the parallel passages in Luke 21, 12 through 19, Mark 13, 9 through 13, and 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Several different words are being used in these passages to refer to this falling away. A lot of times it's using biblical imagery, such as like stumbling or departing, such as a or scandalizo or parapepto. The Dictionary of Biblical Imagery states that there are at least four distinct images in scripture of the concept of apostasy all connote an intentional defection from the faith. These images are rebellion, turning away, falling away, or adultery apostasia is really the only technical term used for leaving the faith, whether if Judaism or Christianity, depending on the context, that is used in 2 Thessalonians 2. I know a lot of people believe that that is a reference to the rapture, and we'll talk about that when we get to the rapture section. But you can see the film that I wrote and produced called Seven Preacher Problems. Uh, if you want to see an entire section devoted to that concept of apostasia in 2 Thessalonians 2. But long story short, even the majority of pre-trib scholars reject the idea that apostasia in 2 Thessalonians 2 means the rapture. It causes way more problems than they think that it solves, or some people think uh, that it solves. I do think it is helpful to know that Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 is using that technical term for apostasy uh, and he's referencing the falling away that the Lord mentions in the Olive Discourse. Um, a lot of people have understood that Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 is only giving the Thessalonians a Bible study about the order of events leading up to the day of the Lord. He says, hey, don't you remember the day of the Lord can't start until the apostasy or falling away happens, as well as the man of sin being revealed, sitting in the temple declaring himself to be God, which are the exact order of events that uh, the lord uses in the Olive discourse he, the day of the lord which is the sign leading up to the rapture in matthew 24 30 and 31 can't happen until the falling away comes first and the man of sin being revealed in the temple so it's the exact order of events that the lord mentions and paul is just reminding the thessalonians of that order of events to show them that no the day of the lord cannot have happened yet because you haven't seen these obvious signs that will happen before the day of the lord so when does this great apostasy or falling away take place? And I think that you can make a case that it takes place after the midpoint. Matthew 24, 10 puts the falling away in the context of the persecution following the abomination of desolation at the midpoint. This can be seen by understanding that Matthew 24, 9 through 14 is a summary and that the following discussion of the abomination of desolation starting in verse 15 is more detail on the event just summarized. This is a widely accepted view, but rarely articulated. Another way to show the same thing is that the same order of events, abomination of desolation, the persecution, then the falling away, can be seen in 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 2-5, The day of the Lord won't come until the revelation of the man of lawlessness in the temple in Jerusalem and the apostasy. I also think Revelation 13, 5 through 8 can help with this question. It has the same events, that is persecution that follows the abomination and the worship of the Antichrist occurring explicitly during the three and a half year period, which is a reference to the second half of the 70th week of Daniel, which begins at the abomination of desolation. What are the characteristics of the world during this end times apostasy? So what I've done here is I've taken all the relevant passages about the apostasy and just took the sections that I believe are directly related to this time period. And then I basically counted how many words are devoted to various themes. I think there are about 10 or so themes in these passages, things like warnings about deception from false Christs and false prophets, um, about how they're going to be delivered from the persecution, or how they are need, need to be a witness even unto death. There are a lot of themes that are repeated in these various passages about or surrounding the events of the end times apostasy. And I basically just counted how many words are devoted to each theme and found that the vast majority, uh, 20%, is devoted to warnings about false Christs and false prophets and their deception. And I think this is an interesting point that I've noted, you know, just in passing before, specifically about the Olivet Discourse, when they ask the Lord, what are the signs of his return? It seems to me that he devotes a, a huge amount of time to telling them, hey, don't be deceived by the false Christ and false prophets. They're going to be in the desert, but don't go after them. There's just all these words that are basically saying they're going to try to deceive the elect if it's possible, but see that I've told you beforehand, Um, they're going to perform false signs and wonders. just a lot of detail about the false Christ and false prophets. And that seemed to extend not just to the Olivet Discourse, but to all these passages about the apostasy seem to be related to this false doctrine. So, it it helps to bolster this case that the apostasy is not as some people define it and we'll talk about later what people think it is but you know that it's just generally talking about sin or something like that no it's talking about a a bunch of christians leaving christianity and we'll talk about the theological implications of that or whatever but that's what it is christians leaving christianity in the end times presumably because of the deception of the false christ and false prophets and this graph which uh, shows that the majority of these words are devoted to that specific thing, uh, seems to bolster that case. Other prominent themes are directly related. For example, there is a discussion of the persecution, presumably as a result of rejecting the false messiah, at 16%. So another huge chunk is talking about how they're going to persecute you and throw you in jail. And another theme, the necessity to flee from the persecution. So there's a big chunk specifically in the Olivet Discourse where it says, you know, when you see the abomination of desolation, don't go back and get your coat, all that. That adds up to about uh, 14% of the time. How they're going to be hated during that time and how there's going to be, you know, people are going to Uh, give up their children and the whole world is going to hate them for Jesus's name's sake. That is 7% and how they should be a witness even unto death, 8%. The second biggest section at 17% is the discussion about how they will be delivered from this persecution by the rapture. So, you know, most of this is bad news, but there is a sizable chunk that's saying, hey, yes, it's really bad, but you will be delivered from that persecution by uh, the rapture. Other less prominent themes include how the time will be characterized by lawlessness, a lack of love at 6%. There are some other interesting characteristics that didn't really make the graph, such as in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, it talks about how in the latter times when this departure from the faith happens, there's going to be apparently a false demonic teaching that's going to be about legalism the the requiring the abstinence of foods that god created to be received with thanksgiving he makes this whole argument about how that stuff has been uh you know in the new covenant is not uh, illegal to eat anymore which i think is an interesting thing to say that the spirit expressly says that will happen in the latter times because it's a very legalistic argument you could make the case and i think you should make the case that that paul is saying that in the end times there's going to be this massive uh, a legalistic thing that's you can only look at it as a as a Jewish kind of prohibition. I suppose there could be like some other kind of thing that says we shouldn't eat uh, certain foods because they are unclean. But in the context of the false messiahs and the false prophets, it all seems to to make sense. Another aspect of the characteristics of this end times apostasy can be seen in the psychology, and I think that we get a glimpse into the heads of the people at that time through these passages that talk about the hatred of all nations for Christians during that time, as well as the betrayal of one Christian to another. So I think there are two types of uh, hatred and betrayal going on in these passages. One is the hatred of the world for Christians because of Jesus at this time, as well as the betrayal of one Christian over another. And I think that is the more interesting one to look at. Just a few uh, of these verses, hated by all nations for my name's sake, Matthew 24, 9b. So that's probably just the the whole world hating Christians who will not follow the, the false Messiah. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. That I think is probably talking about how Christians will betray one another, as we see in the Mark 13, 12 through 13, uh, which goes into detail about this. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So that one gets both of them. It gets the hatred for his name's sake, but also the betrayal aspect of the brothers to, to betray their brothers, and the fathers their children, and the children their parents. My main point here is to say that these betrayal verses give us a glimpse into psychology. And I think what it's saying is that there is major deception going on here. Specifically, when it talks about how the fathers or mothers are going to turn in their children or the children are going to turn in their parents to put them to death. So they're going to say to the authorities, hey, my, uh, my mom here, she's one of those that don't believe... the the, the right things, please take her away or put her to death. Or on the other end, a mother telling uh, the authorities, please take my kid here. My kid doesn't believe the right thing. Please put him to death, please. That is so crazy that it can only really be explained by deception. And in context, this is all about deception. But I even think it's different than, let's say this is communism taking over or whatever. I don't even think in communism, you have people devoted to a system as much as this. So it gives us this extra detailed glimpse into the hearts of people about how sure that they have found the Messiah. You know, this this is something, the Antichrist is going to do something pretty spectacular and people are going to be just incredibly devoted to the idea. And these verses help me to understand what we're up against in terms of the deception of the Antichrist. It's going to be good and it's going to be convincing to people who will literally kill their children because they believe this so much. No other ideology or political thing can do this. So I think it's showing us that something significant is happening here, deception-wise. What are some of the modern views of this end times apostasy? And so, you know, I've read a lot of commentaries and listened to a lot of sermons about these passages. And it's weird because on the one hand, I think most theologians in a vacuum will tell you exactly what this is, that in the end times, there is a mass exodus from Christianity. These could be people that maybe were not saved before, but, you know, were professing Christians. But there's going to be a massive exodus of Christianity in the end times as a result of the Antichrist's persecution. But because certain theological questions arise at that point, such as these people that left, were they, you know, Christians and they like lost their Christianity Or were they just professing Christians? And there's this whole can of worms there. And as a result of that, I think you get different theories about what the end times apostasy is that people propose for reasons other than uh, maybe what the text is saying. So for example, a lot of people will believe that the end times apostasy is just bad doctrine you know, uh, maybe cults like Catholicism or something like that. In the end times, there will be a great apostasy. And by that, what it means is that in the end times, there's going to be a whole bunch of cults. And so they've sort of excluded themselves from that possibility because they aren't in one of those cults. And it's just talking about something that it, for all intents and purposes already exists. So that is a actually pretty sizable uh, portion of what a lot of people believe about what it's talking about, this great falling away. In the context of the uh, uh, midpoint. Of course, I don't think that they would probably even talk about the midpoint aspect of it, but they would just, that's how they would exegete that particular passage. Another thing I've heard is it's referring to people that heard the gospel and rejected it. Uh, i.e. presumably all people besides the elect. So basically, they're saying that in the end times, there will be this great apostasy. And by that, what it really means is just basically the unsaved world. Anybody that's not a Christian is what it's referring to. There's a leaving of Christianity in the sense that they probably heard the gospel at some point and rejected it, you know, just the world, basically. So there is that idea, which I think is not tenable. There are some that will take it more or less as it says here, that there is going to be an end times event associated with the Antichrist in which a lot of Christians will fall away. But they see that as more of a one-time thing. In other words, they solve the theological conundrum by saying maybe it is possible for Christians to leave Christianity, maybe even true Christians to leave Christianity uh, and follow the Antichrist and worship him and get his mark um, if it's a one-time thing. In other words, once saved, always saved is the rule, except in the end times with the Antichrist, there seems to be another rule that you can't worship the Antichrist and still be a Christian. And if you do that, you will uh, apostatize. There's also pretty much prevailing idea that if anything like you know, true Christians or seemingly true Christians leaving Christianity for the Antichrist happens it is people that were never really christians in the first place and so that's that's kind of a prevailing theme and i suppose that is good because it's unfalsifiable of course we'll never know what is in somebody's hearts you know we can see for all the world it looks like a person who really was saved and had the fruits of the holy spirit rejected christianity and left it we have to believe under certain ideas that they just weren't really saved in the first place I'll argue later that there are a lot of verses that seem to suggest that they were really saved and they really did have the Holy Spirit, but weren't really elect because they did apostatize and God foreknew their apostasy. but because it is unfalsifiable, there's no way to really prove the anecdotes or disprove the anecdotes. You know, if somebody says, no, this person really was saved and they were in church, and I'm telling you, they had the fruits of the Holy Spirit, and they just left it because they wanted to do this sin more, and they just left. And I'm here I'm just talking about anecdotes. You can't prove it or disprove it. So in a way, it makes the whole argument not worth having, because we'll never know that this side of eternity, or maybe ever will know it. Let's look at some ancient views on the end times apostasy, and we'll start with the Didache chapter 16. The Didache is a document, one of the earliest, if not the earliest document that we have from the early church besides the New Testament. Um, It says, watch for your life's sake. Let not your lamps be quenched, nor your loins unloosed, but be ready for you know not the hour in which your Lord comes. But often shall you come together seeking the things which are befitting to your souls, For the whole time of your faith will not profit you if you be not made perfect in the last time. For in the last days, false prophets and corruptors shall be multiplied and the sheep shall be turned into wolves and love shall be turned into hate. Uh, When lawlessness increases, they shall hate and persecute and betray one another. Then shall appear the world deceiver uh, as the son of God and shall do signs and wonders, etc. So he's going through all the stuff uh, in the a Discourse. He ends this way. But they that endure in their faith shall be saved from under the curse itself. So he could be, I think, probably talking about the, the rapture there and, and the saved there. So it's not necessarily there, but the endurance is the operative part there. He's saying to endure this persecution that will come from the Antichrist, pretending to be the son of God, and those that do endure will be saved in that case. He's talking about the, uh, the, the rapture. And the endurance of the end times persecution is an extremely prevalent Uh, theme, that if you think it through, it only means that there is consistent New Testament uh, uh, calls to endure faithfully through that persecution in order to be a part of those that are in the resurrection to life. So it's hard to look at that any other way, except for the early church believing that there was something for Christians to do, i.e. endure. And we'll see that uh, and later when we look at Revelation 2, where it's a very important theme. Also, Barnabas, another early uh, church father, Barnabas 4, through 13, we take earnest heed in these last days for the whole past time of your faith will profit you nothing unless now in this wicked time we also withstand coming sources of danger as becomes the sons of god that the black one may find no means of entrance let us flee from every vanity let us utterly hate the works of the way of wickedness so a similar idea there that the past faith will profit you nothing if you do not endure in these uh, end times. Okay, so now I want to talk more about the early church, but in this case, it's just about apostasy in general, not necessarily the apostasy of the end times, though I think a lot of these guys actually thought they were in the end times. But nevertheless, this is also trying to zero in on the idea that these events of people, of Christians rejecting their faith, were done in the face of persecution. So it was like, I will torture you if you don't say that jesus isn't lord and stop following him or just say the words renounce christ and i'll let you stop being tortured which is a weird thing all by itself which we'll go into in the modern stuff as well but let me just read some of these uh quotes i found in various places uh online the martyrdom of polycarp is sometimes considered to be the first of the acts of the martyrs in this document polycarp is killed for refusing to confess caesar as lord and offer incense he refuses to revile Christ. Other Christians did not always follow his example. Some fell into idolatry in the face of persecutions. Eusebius was an early church father who wrote a lot about uh, the various martyrdoms that were happening. And he talks about how people fell away in the face of persecutions. He mentions Quintus who threw away his salvation in the sight of the wild beasts. So they used to have lions rip people to, to death. Uh, Marcus Aurelius's reign, Eusebius affirms that The Christians confessed their faith despite their sufferings from abuse, plundering, stoning, and imprisonment. It is recorded that in Gaul, some became martyrs, but others who were untrained and unprepared about ten in number proved to be abortions. This is a Greek word. Discouraging the zeal of others. A woman named Bill... Blias, who had earlier denied Christ, confessed him and was joined with the martyrs. Certain defectors did likewise, but others continued to blaspheme the Christian faith, having no understanding of the wedding garment. This, this is what he's writing. And I think this is interesting because he notes a woman who earlier denied Christ and then felt guilty about it and then uh, said, hey, about that thing I said about denying Christ, I, I wasn't true about that. I do, I do believe in Christ and she was killed for it. During the reign of Decius, the Christians of Alexandria are said to have endured martyrdom, stoning or having their belongings confiscated for not worshiping an idol, an idol's temple or chanting incantations, but some readily made unholy sacrifices, pretending that they had never been Christians, while others renounced their faith or were tortured until uh, they did. In his account of the Diocletian persecution, Eusebius commends the heroic martyrs, but is determined to mention nothing about those who made shipwreck of their salvation, believing that such reports would not edify his readers. He, and this is something he mentions in 823, he recollects Christians who suffered in horrible ways, which included their being axed to death or slowly burned, having their eyes gouged out, their limbs severed, or their backs uh, seared with melted lead. Some endured the pain of having reeds driven under their fingernails or unmentionable sufferings in their private parts." Ignatius, another church father, has an interesting story in his letter to the Christians in Rome. He gives insight into the heart of a Christian who is prepared for martyrdom. He hopes to see them when he arrives as a prisoner. He fears that the love they have for him will in some way save him from certain death. Yet he desires to obtain grace to cling to my lot without hindrance unto the end. So he's wanting to, I hope I can endure this torture because they're going to kill him. You know, they're going to torture him to death so that he may attain to God. So he sees his unwaveringness in that, in that not denying Christ so that he may attain to God. He requests prayer for quote, both inward and outward strength that he might not quote, merely be called a Christian, but really be found to be one a Christian, quote, deemed faithful, epistle to the Romans 3. So the, the early church, whether you like it or not, believed that enduring torture and not denying Christ in the face of torture was paramount. I mean, it, their, their Christian faith was based on that. I mean, so these are not inconsequential church fathers by any means, Eusebius and Ignatius and Irenaeus and others. These are the church fathers, and this was the view of the early church. Another way to sort of drive home the point I'm trying to make here is by looking at modern day persecution. So what I did here was just do a search engine, searches for modern day examples of Christians being persecuted or killed for their faith that could have gotten out of it if they would have just recanted their faith. So that's number one, instances of persecution, which I would say are most of them that would not have happened if they had just recanted. I also wanted to grab a subsection of these from basically every religion. These are not just Islamicists that are doing this. These are Indians and South Koreans and literally everybody out there, doesn't matter if they're you know, some tribe that's never heard of anything else, they're killing Christians because they won't recant. This is a satanic thing that Satan is doing where he is torturing Christians to death, but he will stop doing it if they just recant. It's the weirdest thing. You can get out of jail. No one's holding you here. All you got to do is just recant and you can walk out. You don't have to do this Iron Maiden or the rack or whatever. It's a it's a great deal that Satan has offered people all around the world. And I guess I'm trying to say there's some reason for that, I think. But anyway, here's some of these headlines. Villager in India beaten unconscious for refusing to recant Christian faith as a result of the attack. Kawasi was hospitalized for seven days, unable to speak. 13 Christian families in India odysseus state have been displaced from their home village since january after they refused to recant their christian faith china now legally can now legally coerce christians to recant their faith is a quote from that article the new interpretation also says that cult members that repent of their cult activity may be allowed to avoid their punishment so china and by the way china is doing some pretty brutal stuff to christians you don't hear about it very much you hear about the uyghurs but you don't hear about what they're doing to christians and they're getting worse every day Another one, more than 50 Christians refusing to recant their faith uh, were killed. That is in Somalia. On Monday, Muslims murdered 30 Christians who were riding in a bus to a monastery. And in speaking to pilgrims at St. Peter's Square, Francis said the victims amongst which were also children were killed after having refused to renounce their Christian faith. He called the victims these courageous witnesses, these martyrs, and asked God to convert the hearts of the terrorists. Another one, young woman killed in Eritrea for refusing to renounce Jesus Christ. Two killed, dozens abducted in an attack on a Christian church in Nigeria. Quote from the article, the pastor stood his ground by refusing to renounce his Christian faith, even when he knew it would cost him his life. Luca said, quote, he was killed alongside a member of his church. There's no doubt it was worth dying for Jesus Christ. Another one, China now torturing Christians who refuse to renounce faith, torturing Christians who refuse to renounce their faith. China forces Christians to renounce faith, destroying Christian symbols, or be cut off from welfare. Starved, beaten, tortured, forced to undergo abortions and shot, all for being Christians. Horrified abuse of religious prisoners in North Korea is laid bare by those who survived. I would say that the North Korea stuff is absolutely crazy. The stuff that they're doing to Christians there. It it, It is unbelievable the kinds of torture they're doing to Christians in North Korea. It just is unspeakable. Um, moving on. Vietnamese Christians beaten and arrested for refusing to worship Buddha and renounce their faith in Jesus. So you think, oh, the B- the Buddhas are fine. They are beating and arresting Christians for what? For refusing to worship Buddha and renounce their faith in Jesus. This is a consistent th- thing. Another Christians ordered to renounce their faith in Laos. This idea of endurance is a prominent end times um, theme And in Revelation, I think an important place to see this is in the letters to the seven churches. So the seven churches have a lot of if-then statements that people are kind of uncomfortable with and often do not get uh, preached on. In fact, I think most of what people preach on the uh, seven churches is wrong, even sort of mystical. But um, here's some things that it says... I should say that the letters to the seven churches are very uh, structural. They all have the same kind of themes. They have a beginning, middle, and the end with the same kind of uh, issues. And included in that is this message to the overcomer at the end. And remember what the context of the book of Revelation is. Revelation 2 and 3, these seven letters come before the book of Revelation. So we're about to see the Antichrist in Revelation 12 and 13 given authority to conquer the saints, to uh, destroy those who hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ in Revelation 12 and 13. And he's given this power to do this for a while before the day of the Lord starts. And so this is in the context of that. And I think that while these seven churches... Perfectly apply to these churches at that time, probably very specifically, as well as to churches in general throughout time. They are, I believe, more of a message to the church that will about to that's about to face the antichrist. It's very appropriate for them as well. But in that, it says things like uh, in every single letter, it says things like this: "Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers." And who keeps my works until the end to him i will give authority over the nations he will rule them with a rod of iron etc and so there it uses words at the end of each of these letters that that basically mean to him i will give eternal life it uses different illusions for each but the the theme is the same moving on let's see philadelphia says i am coming soon hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown the one who conquers i will make him a pillar in the temple of god never he, he shall go out of it etc And we see similar things like uh, Ephesus. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. To the one who conquers, I will grant him, etc. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto the end and I will give you the crown of life. So it's a lot of if-then statements. Um... Uh, to Pergamum. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and will war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone and a new name, etc. So, I did another graph here where it shows that 29% of the words in the seven churches, Revelation 2 and 3, are are devoted to endurance for eternal life. So the vast majority of the message, according to just the numbers of words devoted to certain topics, the vast majority of the message to the letters of the seven churches is that you need to endure in order to get eternal life in the context, I would assume, of what's about to happen in Revelation. Sometimes it's more or less explicit. Uh, That is to say, endure the persecution, but not always in those letters, but the concept itself is there. 29% of the time, the vast majority. I think you could actually bump that up to nearly 40% of the letters to the seven churches if you also included, for example, words devoted to the need to repent before he returns in order to attain eternal life. It is a very, it's a touchy subject, but it's there in black and white. And I'm here trying to say that whatever you believe about theology, you have an issue to resolve here because the Bible does seem to be particularly uh, serious about this subject. So let's talk about apostasy in general, and let's get into the, the theology of this very briefly. And I should say that I'm going to land very firmly, and I always have been on the side of the preservation of the saints in terms of that you cannot sin your way out of the covenant, uh, but you can apostatize, you can leave Christianity if you want out of the covenant for various reasons. If you want to go out to worship other gods. That seems to be a prominent reason in scripture that people leave God with their eyes wide open. I'll get into the theology in a minute. I just wanted you to know up front that I'm not going to preach a works-based salvation, but if you deny that there is a caveat to that in apostasy, then you are, I believe, setting yourself up for uh, difficulties if you are in the generation that is in the end times at the very least, and it may be bigger and broader than that. So let's first look at the book of Hebrews and the, the book of Hebrews has a lot of verses in it that talk about apostasy. And it's interesting because I believe that the book of Hebrews is also one of the most once saved, always saved books in the Bible. If you look up once saved, always saved verses, it's like a list of them. A lot of them are going to be from the book of Hebrews. And that's not a mistake. But it's also the place that you're going to find a lot of the verses that seem like you can lose your salvation. So what's going on there? And I believe that the answer to that is simply that the once saved, always saved Every argument about that, I almost believe in every single one of them, except that there is a situation in which you can reject Christ with your eyes wide open in order to, A, save your skin, which I think is what was happening in the book of Hebrews. One way to demonstrate that is in Hebrews 12, verse 4 when it says that he's, you know, I think of him who endured such opposition against himself by sinners so that you may not grow weary in your souls and give up. You have not yet resisted to the point of bloodshed in your struggle against sin. And and have you forgotten the exhortation addressed to you as sons? So he's talking to a group of persecuted Christians who apparently have not yet been Killed for it, but they are starting to be killed. You know, the heat is growing in their area or whatever. <clears throat> and he's writing this because they've already started to apostatize, apparently, even in the face of that sort of minor to Paul persecution. And so he says things like uh, this in Hebrews 3:12: Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Hebrews 6, 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who has once been enlightened and who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. That's a really difficult one for people because it says very plainly there that these people have tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, and yet then have fallen away. So that is a very difficult verse for people to uh, 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 interpret. Uh, Hebrews 2, 1 through 3 says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken through the angels proved to be so firm that every violation or disobedience received is its just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So the drifting away, you can't uh, drift away from something that you weren't in beforehand which is his message in context. He has illustrations about apostasy. uh, In Hebrews 12, it says about Esau, and see to it that no one becomes immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know the latter, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no opportunity for repentance, although he sought it with blessings and tears. So he's giving warnings to apostasy and different things like that. I think a lot of people will mention Peter here and say that Peter basically did this. Peter was being threatened. Hey, you're one of those Galileans. You sure talk like a Galilean. And he's out warming his hands by the fire, trying to figure out what's happening to Jesus. And he's like, no, no, I don't know the guy. I'm telling you, I don't know that guy. And the rooster crows, and he realized what he's he's done. I think that there's even something important there in the idea that Jesus has him... you know, thrice sort of restore himself in that. Although he says, you know, look, the rooster is going to do this. You're going to deny me, but I've prayed for you that your faith shall not fail. So there's something there too. I think that it's also important that Peter, I don't know. Um, I think it's a picture of the grace in a lot of these situations. And it's the reason why it's important not to be too dogmatic about this, because maybe there is a situation in which true elect is, can't really apostatize, and I actually think that's what's being said in the, uh, the passage in the Olivet Discourse, where it says that if it was possible, it, the Antichrist could deceive the very elect in the same breath that he's saying many will fall away, which the only way to read that is that that people who were Christians are now leaving the faith, but he will not be able to deceive the very elect. And we take that Hebrews verse where it says, it seems to suggest that one can have the Holy Spirit and yet apostatize the Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. It is impossible in the case who have once been enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, etc. So it says very explicitly there, I would say the, uh, the passage of the parable of the, is it the sowers, where it seems to suggest the same thing in Jesus's interpretation of the parable of the sower, it says, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they heard the word, received it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing fall away. So you could say, well, it sounds like the falling away happened as a result of the testing. And I'll say to you that for a long time, the way that I resolved this in my heart, because again, I believe very strongly in the concept of the preservation of the saints, which is the name of a doctrine that you can't lose your salvation. Uh, I, I often quote Ephesians, where it says that to be given the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of the purchased you know, possession. If you have been changed by the Holy Spirit, it means you've been declared righteous by Christ's righteousness, not of yourselves, obviously. And the fact that you have the Holy Spirit is, according to that, my understanding of that Ephesians verse, evidence that you have been declared righteous with Christ's righteousness. And since it is Christ's righteousness and not yours, that you can't lose it. And you can't get the Holy Spirit without being deemed, if you will, in the eyes of God, um, perfect through Christ's righteousness. You're clothed with Christ's righteousness and therefore you can be indwelled with the Holy Spirit. So there's a whole chain of theological stuff going on that makes me very confident that you can't just sin your way out of the covenant. And so what I was saying is that the way that I've used to interpret this was that there was a caveat that one could apostatize. And apostasy, I think, is not just a normal sin. It's not even a sin, I don't think. It's it's approaching the throne of God and saying, I want to uh, deny you, because I think there's two main things that are happening in the end times. These are people that are believing the Antichrist with all their heart. They desire it. And I think the Antichrist is going to have a theology along with the false prophet that necessitates you denying Christ because he wasn't the real Messiah. He wasn't the real son of God or whatever version of the theology that he's going to have is going to have as a component. you These people that still think that the 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 Messiah was came back in 2000 years ago and was Jesus, they're not right. They're wrong. I am the right one. You need to deny that and you need to get with the real program. I'm the real Messiah. Look, I've done all the Messiah things. I've saved us from the whatever. So there's a denial of Christ in that. It's certainly going to have a persecution component to it as well, obviously, with the greatest persecution of all time. It's going to have deception, it's going to have persecution, and it's going to have the biggest theme about apostasy in the Bible, which is the worship of false gods. And there you would see things like uh, Solomon or whatever, literally going and worshiping false gods, choosing them over and above. And maybe Solomon's not the greatest example, but other, uh, you know, the northern tribes of Israel worshiping false gods or whatever, or all of Israel at various points. And, and choosing to worship them as opposed to worship God. That is apostasy, according to the Bible. So it's got really all the components in this end times apostasy, worshiping false gods, uh, persecution, and deception, and it all that combines into a sin. So I, I, I would say that there's a part of me that says that this is a special situation that occurs in the end times, and I wanted to tell you that. And I wanted to say that and and again there may be this situation in which i'm not understanding the the, the nature of the holy spirit and all this i think you can make the case in some of these verses that these people the, the parable of the sower etc and second 2 peter 2:20 2, and hebrews 10 tw- uh, 25 30 through 31 just talk about the knowledge of our lord jesus uh, christ take second peter 2 through, uh, 20 through 22 for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our lord And Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What what the truth proverb says has happened to them: the dog returns to its own vomit, etc. And then the Hebrews 10 verse uh, says. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but fearful expectation of judgment. So I could make the case in those that, because it sounds like in those, we're not talking about persecution or worshiping false gods or any of the things that we see, which are more explicit. That's talking about just going back to your sins. And in those two problematic passages, it does, it, it doesn't talk about the Holy Spirit so much as it does the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. as opposed, And I think you could equate that to the parable of the sower, that is to say, people were preached the gospel, they sort of went to church. In other words, the sort of John idea, that those who were went out from us were never part of us in the first place. And in that case, of course, John is talking about something specifically that's happening in that church that he's writing to. But it's a principle that could apply, I think, here to Hebrews 10 and 2 Peter, that that is people that never really were saved, they never were elect. And that goes back to my point of, if that's the argument, then this isn't an argument worth having, because you'll never know if they really were saved, or what degree the Holy Spirit uh, was working on their hearts, because you just can't know that. All, all you can know is that it seemed like it. And so, therefore, to have theological d- discussions and debates about those kinds of anecdotes is fruitless and always will be. But you do have these other uh, uh, verses about specifically the end times, and uh, that does seem to me like this renouncing of the faith, in the midst of persecution is not something I suppose you could say it like this. You could you could look at all the verses about perse- persecution and the in need for enduring them in scripture, and you could have a lot of verses. It's a difficult and complicated subject, and I'm not going to solve it here. But I can say that anyone who is ever telling you nothing, there's nothing to worry about about this end times apostasy and it's just talking about, oh, you know, it's just talking about people that aren't saved. They're going to have trouble. No, the Antichrist is coming for the church and he's going to try to deceive everyone in the church that is not elect. And he will find out who and who isn't elect because the deception, which is going to be aimed at Christians, will deceive as many as it possibly can that aren't elect. And we are going to find, like uh, Ignatius was saying, we're going to find out if he's elect or not, if he can endure that, uh, I think he got burned alive or something like that, I'm not sure, without renouncing Christ. And I also want to make the point that something weird is happening both in history and in the current present day about Satan, these, these people who are probably possessed by Satan or demons that are torturing Christians that will just let them leave the jail if they renounce Christ. Why is that? I mean, I guess it could be some sort of demonic game or something like that, but that is weird. Think of a jail where you can just go if you renounce Christ. And that's not a particular religion. As I showed, it's every religion and it's every time period since Jesus died. The renunciation of Christ is important to Satan and it is therefore something we should take very seriously. And tell me if you, I mean, you can read accounts in the early church about how They were wondering what to do with these people that would denounce Christ and say they weren't Christians just to avoid being tortured or killed. And they wondered, should we allow them back into the church? And, you know, again, I think that there's grace and there's Peter as an example and things like that. So I'm not dogmatic about what that means, but I am saying the Bible is very verbose on this subject. And how important it is for you to endure that torture and to not deny Jesus Christ, and you need to prepare your heart for that. And a lot of people ask me, you know, what's the importance of believing? You know, in this case, I believe the the pre-rath rapture, which is that the rapture will not occur until at some unknown point after the midpoint. It could be a, a week after the midpoint. It could be uh, years after the midpoint, but it has to be after the midpoint that and the persecution of the church with the antichrist that the rapture happened and the day of the lord starts people ask me what's the point i mean really what's the deal if you believe the pre-trib rapture or the or the pre-wrath rapture i think the major point is this prepare your hearts as the Bible has instructed us over and over and over again. And if you see all these verses, this flood of verses telling you to prepare your hearts and to endure persecution in the face of the Antichrist persecutions, particularly, and you look at every one of those verses and say, ah, not for me, that's for the tribulation saints or whatever. Basically, there's nothing I need to worry about. I certainly don't need to prepare my heart for that in America. And that is, that's the danger. That's the danger. You are sitting ducks. You're completely unprepared. It takes time and, and prayer to prepare your heart for that. And if you're not prepared, I don't know. That's where we get into the theology question. And I just don't know the answer to that. Anyway, that will do it for me today. You can go to the website, BibleProphecyTalk.com. Also go to the BibleProphecyArchive.com if you want to uh, download that Uh, that link that I was telling you about, the 16 gigabyte library of Bible prophecy materials. Do try to download the link first. If you can't download on either of the the link or the backup link, then let me know and I'll send you a a, a hard copy of it. Just tell me where to send it via email at BibleProphecyArchive at ProtonMail.com.